Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. His bottom line is he wanted them to know that he and he alone could forgive their sins. And if they were putting two and two together, they would have had to come to the realization, well, if only God can forgive sins, and if Jesus is forgiving sins, then Jesus is either blaspheming or he is, in fact, the Son of God and God the Son. Part 2 of The Great Physician. In this message, Pastor Sam continues on in Matthew 9, starting in verse 6. Jesus has just healed a paralytic and forgiven him of his sins, and not everyone is happy about it. He's about to call Matthew the tax collector to follow him, and once again, I'm not sure everyone is overly pleased. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house, that you may know what's Jesus' bottom line here. His bottom line is he wanted them to know that he and he alone could forgive their sins. And if they were putting two and two together, they would have had to come to the realization, well, if only God can forgive sins, and if Jesus is forgiving sins, then Jesus is either blaspheming or he is, in fact, the Son of God and God the Son. Those were the only two choices available. And so some decided, in spite of the evidence, in spite of what they saw, to continue to walk in unbelief. Others, they're just going to be convinced and and they're going to be rejoicing. So immediately he arose and departed to his house. Now, we don't know if he had any faith prior to Jesus speaking personally to him. We do know his friends had faith because they went to great extremes to get him there. And they must have believed if they could just get him to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. Now he's been forgiven. Now he's been healed. And where does his faith comes in? Well, the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So again, maybe someone else had enough faith to get you here. And they believe that if God's word will just be shared in your presence and it'll penetrate your heart and and you will ask forgiveness as well. But but here's what happens. You can hear it and you can continue in unbelief or you can hear it and you can realize, man, if this be true, I need my sins forgiven. And if Jesus is the one who paid, then, well, of course, he's the only one who can forgive. And, and, And that's why he paid. And well, that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise, take your bed and go to your house. The moment he heard that command, the command to do the impossible, he rose up and did the impossible. You see, it's impossible for a paralytic to walk. But Jesus commands him to do it, and wherever Jesus commands, he empowers. Later, he'll tell the guy with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. The guy could have said, I can't stretch out my hand. It's withered. But instead, he just stretches out his hand. Why? Because with that command comes the empowerment, comes the ability to believe. Well, he arose, departed to his house, and the multitudes, note their response, it's twofold. When they saw it, they marveled. They were blown away as they had been so many other times thus far. And they glorified God who'd given such power to men. Now, they hadn't all processed yet that Jesus, in order to do these things, had to be the Son of God. There were miracle workers in the Old Testament. Jesus would empower his own disciples to go out and do miracles. 
But Jesus was doing it by his own power and authority. It wasn't delegated. It was inherent. Well, if the first example shows someone, well, a group, bringing their friend to Jesus, the second example shows a man bringing Jesus to his friends. And this works equally well. We find Jesus passed on from there, verse 9, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. You'll come across the word publican in your scripture. means the same thing. Sort of a public servant, but not if you were one of his brethren, you would have thought more a public parasite or a terrible traitor. In fact, I doubt that tax collectors rate high on, you know, the most admired and loved people in our generation. But in that generation and in this society, they were absolutely hated and despised. And here's why. The tax collectors like Matthew, they would have bought that position. And they extracted taxes. They had an agreement with the Roman government to pay a certain amount. Anything over and above that they could keep. So they would position themselves at the crossroads where traffic was coming through, where goods were moving through, and there were all sorts of taxes possible. And so lots of these guys were wealthy, lots of these guys were dishonest, and all of these guys were, by and large, I think, hated And so Jesus sees Matthew, and he sees him sitting there at his tax office, at his tax table, and he just says, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Now, two things we need to know. Matthew didn't just for the first time see and hear Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me, and he kind of gets up, yes, master, you know, I follow you. It wasn't a mindless decision. It was a thoughtful decision. And no doubt Matthew had been exposed to the ministry of Jesus for some time. We know this because Matthew, and we talked about this in our last study, Matthew had a lot to lose physically, financially, by following Jesus. And it wasn't like he was going from one despised group to the most admired. No, Jesus was going to, again, put him in a despised group, for, but for another reason altogether. So Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew knows who Jesus, well, he knows, may not know all about Jesus, but he knows what he's been doing, he knows what he's been teaching, he decides to leave all behind his trade, his his power, his finances, and follow after Jesus. Now, the other thing is, Jesus did something kind of interesting when he built his little team of disciples. He called a zealot named Simon. If you're not familiar with the zealots, those were the most radical of that day. They were sworn to wipe out the enemies of their people. Well, if you see this, it's it's like he takes this zealot who for all intents and purposes would have just as well seen Matthew dead. And if he had opportunity, probably would have killed him himself. And then he calls Matthew too. And I'm thinking, well, the scripture doesn't say so. You know, Jesus paired these guys off. And I wouldn't be surprised if he paired those two together. Why? He often does that kind of thing where he puts the most unlikely people together to do the most incredible work for him. Why? Everyone's going to look and think just that they can be together is a miracle. Just that he's not killing him is a miracle. And now they're working together in the kingdom of God. 
We have that here. We have sheriffs and people that have been arrested by those sheriffs. And, and some of you look around and see, I knew that guy looked familiar. He arrested me once. And you're thinking, yeah, I remember that guy. I arrested him once. And you know what? Sheriffs got to be forgiven just like the people they arrest. Why? Because sheriffs, just like everyone else, are sinners. And it's from God's perspective, all have sinned. That's what the scripture says. Well, in any case, he puts them together. They're working as a part of his team. And I said, even as in the first example, they were bringing people to Jesus. Now we see Matthew bringing Jesus to people. And he does something I want to encourage you to do, especially if you're a relatively young Christian. And that is, invite your friends to your home and share the Lord with them. Tell them what God is doing in your life. Tell them what God has done in your life. Maybe you've invited them to church and they're like, I don't think so. Then just invite them over your house and share with them. Because God will use that and bless that. And that's exactly what's happening here. Listen, where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's there in the midst, the scripture says. So if you got you and your wife or you and your roommate and you got somebody else and they're believers, invite people over. Share the Lord with them. It's how I came to the Lord. A friend invited me and he shared the Lord with me. And that's the case for so many of us. Well, so it was as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, if there was conflict over his forgiving the paralytic, you know there's going to be conflict over him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. We know all of sin, but this is talking about notorious, nefarious sinners, the kind that hang out with tax collectors. And so uh, there he is. He's with them. And when the Pharisees saw it, the Pharisees, again, partners with the scribes, Pharisees, the most conservative religious um, outwardly spiritual group of their day. Inwardly, though, Jesus said they had a few problems, one of them being they were full of dead men's bones. But um, basically, they see it and they say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's an interesting question coming from their lips because they didn't consider themselves sinners. Or if they were, certainly not as bad as those people, those sinners, you see. And so what's happening here is they're questioning why Jesus, if he's spiritual, is hanging out with people who are so unspiritual. Now, one quick word of warning Jesus was able to do something not all of us are able to do, and that is he was able to hang out with the defiled without being defiled himself. He could go into a group of people and not have their sins spill over on him. If you think, well, the Lord's called me to that kind of ministry. I know people who've had real drinking problems and they get saved and they're walking with the Lord and they say, I'm going to go back and witness in the bar. Better to wait till your friend comes out and witness. Trust me. Why? Because you get in there and you're thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with just one because, you know, that'll just loosen it up, show them I'm just one of the guys that Christians can have. The Bible doesn't say a Christian can't drink. And it's so easy to justify it and rationalize it. And pretty soon you've had one and two and three and four and, and you're blathering on about Jesus and they're looking at you like, you're just a drunk like us. 
And when that happens, you're blowing an opportunity to do something they really need to have done. Somebody share Jesus with them who's clear-headed, who's soft-hearted, who's passionate for them and for him. And so I'm not saying Christians shouldn't go around their non-Christian friends. But I noticed that Jesus always sent his disciples out two by two. I think there's wisdom in that. I think that there's sanity in that, safety in that. And so in any case, here they are. Jesus is with the tax collectors. He's with these notorious, nefarious sinners. The Pharisees are ripping on him for it. Why is he eating with those tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, hey, it's a good answer to their question. These people need my help. If you're well, you're not in need. If you're whole, you don't need healing. But the physician comes to care for those who are in need. And Jesus is the great physician. Now remember, he's concerned with the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Heart, soul, and mind. He wants us to be right completely. But, but he tells them, those who are well. And then he says, go learn what this means. By the way, this would have been a real irritation or aggravation to them because these guys are the scholars, see? And it's like, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Why would Jesus say that? Because they were all about sacrifice. They were all about rules and regulations and rituals and, and outward observances of fast and feast and Everything was outward, though, and inwardly they were still corrupt. So he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Two thoughts there. They should have known, and if you don't know, you will now. Isaiah says, there are none righteous, no, not one. Not one person except Jesus has been tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He was righteous and we're not. And they weren't. But the Pharisees, remember, considered themselves righteous. And they should have remembered, oh yeah, Isaiah said, none righteous. The, the real question isn't why was Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's why would he eat with any of us? Why did he care for tax collectors and sinners? Why would he care for any of us? It's because his very nature is love. And, and whatever we are, we've got to express. And so he has to express his love. And he does it by redeeming fallen sinners, by restoring broken relationships, by, by putting together people who've trashed their lives and other lives. So he says, listen, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, something they were failing to show, and not sacrifice, something they were all about. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't miss that last word, repentance. It's simply telling us that in order for Jesus to do what he did for the paralytic, forgive sins, there has got to be turning from those sins. It's sort of built into a lot of the passages, but we don't want to miss it. It can be a missing word in the gospel today. 
People pray, Lord, forgive me all my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Cleanse me. I just want to walk with you and grow in you and represent you. And they're all stoked and happy, but then they continue in their sin. And he says he's come to call sinners to repentance, to turn from sin and turn to him, to turn from sin and trust in him. Well, the disciples of John come to him saying, verse 14, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Before we look at his answer to this, understand these guys were followers of John the Baptist. And John, he was a little bit strange of a character. I mean, he lived out in the wilderness. He ate wild honey and locusts. He dressed like Sonny and Sheriff. You remember those guys? You know, like just sort of like cavemen, you know? And, and, and so he was odd. And uh, his followers then were going to be following after his example. Now, you need to know the law only required one fast a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And John, it would seem, made a habit of fasting. Now, the Pharisees were told many of them fasted to be seen of men. That's why Jesus warned about it in the Sermon on the Mount. They weren't fasting to get closer to God, to deny the flesh and and feed the spirit. No, they were fasting so people would look at them and consider them spiritual. And, And there's something else here. Here's John's disciples. Now, they are fasting, I would think, to get closer to God. But they're asking, how come we're fasting and Your guys aren't fasting. I'll tell you, nothing is harder than to be in the middle of a fast and drop by a feast. You don't want to go to weddings when you're fasting. Why? They got all that food and all that cake and all that stuff, you know. And that's the example he's about to use. He's going to say, look, when you're hanging out with the bridegroom, it's time for feasting, not fasting. And in essence, I was thinking through this. We're guilty of doing something that perhaps John's disciples were guilty of. And, and that is doing something that's good and profitable and spiritual, but not really being sure why we're doing it. Maybe we're not doing it for the wrong reason to be seen of men. We just don't even know why we're doing it. I would suggest that they were fasting because John taught them to fast. John was their example and they were doing what John did. But I've noticed over the years that from time to time, we kind of take an inventory spiritually around here and we look at what we're doing and we're looking at the fruit it's bearing or not bearing and we ask the question, why are we doing this? And sometimes it's like, well, we've been doing it for years. We've been doing it forever. And that's not the right reason to be doing it. Sometimes the Lord actually directs you to do something and he blesses it and it bears fruit because that's what he's doing. And then he says, I'm, I'm done with that. But we don't even pay attention and he's moved over here and we're still over here and we're like, we're still doing it, but I don't see the blessing. I don't see the fruit. Well, if you're wondering why you do something, it'd be good to check out the Bible and find out why am I doing that? Is it something God commands? Is it something God commends? Is it something God's blessing in my life or through my life? Because if not, if your only reason for doing something is, well, I've always done this, or this is what they taught me to do, you want to go back and re-examine. Well, in any case, they come and they ask a very good question. Hey, we're fasting. You guys are feasting. What's up with that? So Jesus says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
those days that he speaks of here would be the day of his arrest. It would be the day of that brutal beating he would take, the 39 stripes upon his back, the plucking out of his beard, the spitting in his face, the blindfolding and blindsiding of him, the nailing him to a cross. His death, his being put in that tomb. You can bet the disciples were fasting then. And not not for repentance or just to grow closer to the Lord or no fasting from grief fasting because there's no appetite for anything but but their mourning and their their sorrow Jesus says that day's coming but this isn't it and hey when we get together it should always be a feast not a fast it should always be a celebration of what Jesus is doing in us shouldn't be a dry and dull and bummer time together, but a wonderful time of worship and study of his word and transformation as a result. Well, Jesus gives us a couple illustrations, and you need to know that's all they are. He's just illustrating his point with a couple of things that would have made total sense to them and should make sense to us. He says, look, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth, verse 16, on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tears made worse. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined and they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. It's the new cloth on an old garment. It's a simple picture. You got a tear, you take a piece of cloth to patch it, but you don't first wash the cloth. Once you sew it on and then wash it, it's going to pull away as it shrinks and then the tear is worse than it was before. The, the new wine and old wine skins, they used skins, not bottles for their wine. And if you had a fresh skin, you could fill it up. And, and then as that wine continued to ferment and those gases were released, the, the skin, because it was supple and it was new, it would expand. But if it was old and hardened, well, it would it would break and burst. The wine would be lost. The wine skin would be trashed. And I think my pastor came up with a little, this is probably where he came up with his, uh, his little parable that blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. I pass it on to you because I totally believe it. That if we stay soft, if we stay supple, if we stay, well, flexible, then we're not going to be bursting or, or broken. But, but here's his point. Jesus was ushering in a new dispensation. Jesus was bringing about a new covenant. And he's saying you really can't mix the old covenant of law and rules and regulations and sacrifices and ceremonies and feasts and fast. You can't put all that together with the grace and mercy that I've come to show you for, for the, the debt I've come to pay for you. Why? Though those things, the old covenant, were instituted by God, Jesus came to develop and, and to, to um, initiate a new covenant. That's exactly what he did at the Last Supper. Is he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for you. So he's saying there's no way to mix the two. We can learn from the old and see the fulfillment in the new. But you can never really mix the two. And there are so many applications of that. They're endless. 
So we're going to just take it for the illustration he meant it for in this context and say, look, you can't mix the old ways of religion and you're doing and you're trying and you're... No, it's not about you. It's about him. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what he did. It's not about you and your religion. It's about him and his righteousness. When we think of righteousness, it's natural and normal to begin to think that I need to start doing this or I need to do that. However, that can be a trap that we need to avoid because there is never a type or a level of activity that will ever make us righteous. The Apostle Paul taught us that the righteous live by faith. And living this way means we are trusting that the only true righteousness belongs to our Lord and his righteousness is imputed to and covers those who are in him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down The Calvary Road. And your grace.